Good morning. Pastor Kyle Thompson, I'm so glad to see all of you here today. Thanks for coming, especially our guests who are with us, whether you're in person or watching online or listening to our podcast. We're just super excited to have you with us. As Kevin said, we're in the, the series Back to the Start, and we've gone right back to the very beginning of the Bible. We've been in Genesis. We're in the book of Exodus today, and we're finding out some of the foundations of our faith and what we believe. And uh, we've, we've seen already 2,000 years before Jesus is born, we're already seeing Jesus at work. And uh, we, we've seen that through Abraham and Isaac, a kind of foreshadowing some of Christ. And we saw it last week with Joseph. And today we're going to see that with Moses as well. So I'm uh, super excited you're here today. Just would invite you now to join me in a moment of silent prayer that I would deliver God's word today. Uh, that we would all hear it and allow our stories to be part of God's upper story. Uh, let's pray about that together. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. This past week, I've been binge-watching uh, the show Stranger Things on Netflix not sure if you're familiar with it. They've done two seasons of it. I'm kind of late in the game trying to catch up. I've been through all of season one. Now I'm trying to savor season two because they're really good. And I don't want it to end. But uh, uh, the characters, the main characters are these, uh, these uh, young people in the sixth, seventh grade. Uh, in the 1980s, so it's 1982, season one, they're, they're in the sixth grade, 1983, they're in the seventh grade, and uh, I'm identifying with this because when I was in sixth grade, it was 1982, when I was in seventh grade, uh, it was 1983, and so I'm kind of like reliving my childhood with the exception of I wasn't kidnapped by a monster from another dimension without a face, uh, which happens in the show, but uh, that didn't happen to me, but anyway, it's, it's been a great thing, but, but I did have one day in my seventh grade uh, life that would probably qualify for a Stranger Days kind of a moment. And so it was the seventh grade. It was the next to last day of school. It was my mother's birthday, and there was a solar eclipse that day. And so should have had an idea going to school. It wasn't going to be a normal day of school. So you know how everybody's excited to get out of school, and they're ready for summer break. And so we were in gym class, and uh, the teacher took the easy way out, just threw a couple balls out on the court and said, it's time to play dodgeball, which, you know what dodgeball is? You, you put two teams on either side of the court, and you throw balls at each other, and you try to peg each other. Not very politically correct, but it's a lot of fun, and you get a lot of aggression. So after we played dodgeball, uh, one of the guys in the class picked up one of the balls, and he's this real tall guy, and uh, he hung out with the, the school bully. Uh, the guy with the ball's name was Tony. His, his bully friend's name is Billy, and Tony just kind of hooked the ball, and he, he hummed it off the wall and just threw it, and it ricocheted and hit me in the face and knocked me down on the ground, and I didn't really see that coming. I don't think he meant to do any harm to me. He was just kind of throwing the ball but my friend Kevin went up to him and took a major disagreement with him and pushed him down, uh, and I guess to defend me or whatever, which yeah, that's a nice thing to do. But uh, we went down to the locker room and we're changing our clothes. And, and all Tony started talking about was how he's going to whoop my butt uh, and he's going to fight me. And I'm like, well, I, I didn't do anything. You threw the ball, hit me in the face. You know, why do you want to fight? So anyway, we go back upstairs. We're sitting on the bleachers getting ready to be dismissed, and he's just talking a bunch of smacks, saying a lot of things I can't repeat in church. And, uh, you know, we get released from class. We go outside into the courtyard, and he just sucker punches me right in the face. And I've never been in a fight in my life. I'm scared to death. And, and the teacher comes out. I'm thinking, okay, I'm saved, right? It's going to be good. But the teacher called us back because we went out before the bell rang. And so 
here I am sitting in the bleacher. I'm feeling super alone. And, you know, this bully's getting ready to pound me into dirt. And uh, I'm scared to death of what's getting ready to happen, not wanting to go back outside. And now everybody's, all the buzz is happening because they've seen what's going on. And so the bell rings. We go out into the courtyard and immediately all the kids, you know, get in a circle around us. They start chatting, fight, 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 fight. And, and Tony's on one side and I'm on, I'm on one side and, and I'm looking at him. And, you know, I just I felt trapped. I felt like uh, there was this, this wall. There was a wall of people. Uh, there was Tony there. His friend Billy the bully was over near him. And, you know, and just the, the, the pressure, you know, the physical pressure getting ready to fight, the emotional pressure, the social pressure. You know, if I tried to run away, be made fun of. And, you know, I, I just, I felt trapped. I felt walled in. Everywhere I looked, there was something bad or negative. And, and I'm guessing that, that you know what that feels like. Do you know what that feels like? I mean, not necessarily that you're in a fist fight at school, but that you're in a situation in life and, and, you, and you're walled in. We, we've been walled in and, and things are just working against us. And, and maybe it's a health issue that we're sick or someone that we love is, is, is very sick. Or maybe it's a, we feel trapped at work or maybe we feel trapped at school or maybe we're in a, an abusive relationship and we're not able to escape that. And, and we know how you know, humiliating and how frustrating, how fearful that can make us feel to be walled in. Well, that's exactly what was happening with the people of Israel uh, in what we read this past week in Scripture. We're somewhere around 1,500 years before Jesus was born. And last week, we left uh, the people of Israel in pretty good shape. They had come down to Israel. Uh, Joseph had been made second in command of the whole nation of Egypt, and he brought his family down, and they'd saved up all this food during a famine. And so Joseph and his family, right, the 12 tribes of Israel that are going to start the nation of Israel all in Egypt, and everything's going really well. But you know, since we left them, then you know Joseph's died. Some of those patriarchs have died, but but their children have have multiplied. And there's a big group of Israelites now living in Egypt. And there's a new Pharaoh, and Pharaoh, uh, and 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 a whole line of Pharaohs. They forget that the Israelites, the Hebrew people, are their friends, and so. They begin to see how, how numerous they've grown and they begin to, to see them as free labor. And so they enslave the people of Israel. And, and the people of Israel have been in Egypt now for 430 years. And in most of those years, they have been enslaved. And, and we know uh, what slavery can do to people and how harmful it has been to, to African-Americans in, in our country and how divisive it has been in, in the history of our, of our civil war and how it, it, we still reap the, 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 the pain and the suffering from, from slavery. And, and, and we, just, we didn't have it for 400 years. Can you imagine you know, the stress that the people of Israel are under? And they're wondering, you know, where is God? We're supposed to be the promised nation and to lead the world to God. And so, you know, what's going on? And, and then God raises up this, this most unlikely hero, you know, a guy named Moses who was born uh, uh, an Israelite, a Hebrew, and there was a death sentence. They were killing all the baby boys because they didn't want the, the Israelites to multiply anymore. And so Moses' mom takes him. She puts him in a basket, you know, puts him down the Nile River. Pharaoh's daughter finds him, raises him as her own son. And in the Pharaoh's house, when Moses grows up, he understands Finally, what the oppression is happening to his people, he sees an Egyptian whipping, you know, an Israelite and it makes him mad and he kills the Egyptian and he flees for his life. Pharaoh's trying to kill him and he lives out in the desert and becomes a shepherd. And God finally says enough is enough. He reaches out to Moses and, 
and he lights this bush on fire, but it doesn't consume the bush. And through that bush, God begins to communicate with Moses that, that he is this unlikely hero that God has selected to set his people free. And so if you've got your Bibles or your phones or your tablets or you just want to look up on the screen here, we're going to be in the second book of the Bible, Exodus. Uh, and we're going to be in Exodus chapter 3, beginning with verse 7. The Lord said uh, through the burning bush, I've indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Remember, God has promised the people of Israel to be a great nation and to give them the land of Israel. And he made that promise to Abraham and then to Isaac and then to Jacob and now to his ancestors. He says, the covenant, the promise is still true. I'm going to give you that land. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. Some of the Israelites are probably thinking, well, it's about time. We've been here for 400 years, God, but, you know, better late than never. And so, so now, Moses, go. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Right? That, that would probably be our response. I mean, there's a death sentence on me. Pharaoh knows me. This is very personal. He wants to kill me. And, you know, God, I've got a stuttering problem. I can't talk really well. And do you really want to send me? Is there not anyone else that, that you would want to send? Right? Finally, somebody in the Bible who's really honest with God, you know, pick somebody else uh, than me. And God said, though, I will be with you. Right? When, we're, when we're trapped in the walls, when, when we're trapped in the relationships, when we're trapped at work, we're trapped financially, we're trapped by bullies, right? God's promise to, to Moses is our promise. Exodus 3.12, I will be with you. You are not alone. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you've been brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God here on this mountain. Moses said to God, well, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And then they asked me, well, okay, well, Moses, well, what's God's name then? Then what will I tell them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you, right? That sounds like a Popeye kind of reaction. I am what I am and that's all that I am, right? I am who I am. Like what kind of an answer is that that God's giving to Moses? He's, he just says, you want to tell him who sent you? Just say, I am sent you. Well, what does that mean? It means, right, it's, it's an ontological statement, right? Ontology is a study of existence. God's saying the one who created the universe the one who made everything able to exist, the one who created you, that's the one who sent me, right? The, the only one who can claim that, that I am, right? We exist because God first exists. Tell them the God of the universe has sent you to them. So Moses reluctantly goes. He gets some help from his brother Aaron, and it starts this kind of like a tennis match back and forth between Moses and Pharaoh, where Moses is very bold, and he stands up to Pharaoh. He says, let my people go, and, and Pharaoh says, no, I'm not going to let your people go, and, and then sometimes he says, I'm going to let your people go. Then he changes his mind, and, and it's just this back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, and so in the midst of this, God sends these plagues upon the Egyptians, and he turns the water into blood. He sends flies and gnats and frogs and locusts and, and all these kinds of darkness and and what's going on is is God is kind of mocking the false Egyptian gods who who were the gods of the frogs and the and the flies and all that kind of stuff and so God's saying they're not real I'm real and you need to let my people go and so Pharaoh continues to refuse to do that 
And there's some, there's some parts of this story that, that personally I find that are hard just to understand and, and to wrestle with. And, you know, there's, there's a section in there where it says that God hardens Pharaoh's heart, where, where he makes Pharaoh say, no, I'm not going to let the people go. And, you know, I personally just, I wrestle with that. I believe it. I believe it's in scripture. I believe it's true. I believe God had a reason. And I think God was setting up this great finale to show, you know, who the real God was and how he was going to deliver his promise. But, you know, also I believe in free will that God has given us the ability to make our own choices and to choose whether to follow God or not. So, you know, when Pharaoh gets punished, is it because uh, he did something or did God make him do something and then punish him for that? And so, you know, so I wrestle with that. And so it's okay to wrestle with that, I think. And, you know, maybe that's something you can talk about in your small groups as, as we talk about this passage of scripture. But, you know, I do take consolation in knowing that this is an isolated uh, incident in scripture that, you know, Pharaoh had demonstrated that he was going to refuse to let the people go before God hardened his heart. So, you know, Pharaoh is not like some kind of poster child for, for doing the right thing. So, but, you know, we still wrestle with that. And, and then the plagues are tough to kind of handle, especially the last plague that God sends upon the people of Egypt. And he kills all of the firstborn. He kills the children, the babies, the, the young adult uh, firstborn. He even kills the, the cattle, the firstborn cattle. And, you know, like, why would God kill, kill the firstborn, even babies and children? What have they done to deserve this? And so, again, we, we, we wrestle with this. It's okay to wrestle with this. There's a lot of violence in the Old Testament. And, you know, maybe we could say, well, you know, the ultimate consequence of all of our sin is death. And we're all going to die one day because we've been cut off from the tree of life. And so... You know, their lives ended before they should, but that, that's, everyone's going to face that. Or, you know what? The Egyptians killed all of the, the Israelite babies. And, you know, sometimes we reap what we sow. You know, we might could read that into it. Or, or we could say, you know, when we're ungodly parents, that, that we are bringing about the spiritual destruction of our children. And so it would have happened sooner or later. And, you know, we can make those excuses. But at the end of the day, it's a tough pill to swallow but it, it's part of our, our, our heritage and our lineage, and we have to wrestle with that. But the, the big picture part of that is, right, the way that the Israelite children and firstborn were saved was they sacrificed this lamb, and they put the blood over the doorpost so that when God sent the angel of death to kill all the firstborn, when they saw the blood over the doorpost, the angel would pass over and pass over and not kill the firstborn of the Israelites. And so that started a tradition uh, in the Jewish faith that they, they still celebrate today of, of the Passover, of, of how God saved the firstborn of the Israelites. And it's a foreshadowing of Jesus dying on the cross. Jesus becomes the lamb for us. And when he sheds his blood, our sins, our guilt, our shame, our death, our hell are passed over by God. And so it's, it's a big picture kind of theme of getting ready for Jesus' sacrifice and his blood and how that saves us. It's still hard to deal with. And if you wrestle with that, it's okay. But at the end of the day, Pharaoh lets Moses go. He lets the people go. And then he changes his mind again. And Moses and the Israelites find themselves walled in. On the one side is the Red Sea, and the other side is Pharaoh and his military and their chariots, and they're coming to kill him, right? And so, so what Moses does is he talks to God, he prays to God, and God opens up the Red Sea, and he delivers the people of Israel. They go through, the, the Egyptians follow them, God causes the sea to crash and, and wipe them out, but the people of Israel have been set free, right? So the Exodus means the way out. God gave them 
the way out. And so I think, right, for us, big picture thinking, right, the big idea, what, what we can take from the scripture is that when we are walled in, then to look to God for the way out. When we are walled in in our circumstances and in our situation, then we are to look to God for the way out. So back to my story in the seventh grade, I'm out in the courtyard. There's a group of students all around us. The bullies in front of me is other bully friends beside me. I am scared to death for my life. And right. So right before I came out, you know, we, we went out, we went back into the bleachers and all that kind of stuff. I'll tell you what I was doing. I was praying and I'm like, Lord, you've got to help me. Right. I don't want to get beat up and I don't want to be embarrassed in front of all these people. And, you know, why is this happening to me? I didn't even do anything wrong. And you know, what's going on with this, God? And so we went back out in the courtyard and you got all the people chanting, fight, fight, fight. And Tony's ready to fight me and this Billy, bully guys beside him. And I'm just sitting there and, and all of a sudden I had one of those Exodus 3.12 moments to where I just felt the peace of God and I knew that God was with me. And whether I won that fight or I got totally destroyed and humiliated, some way, somehow, I wasn't by myself. God was with me. Now, of course, God is with Tony and God's with Billy and God's with all those other children because God loves all of us. But I felt God's presence. And so, so then it was on. And so Tony came in after me and he was swinging and I was swinging. And I don't remember all the details. All I remember, I was scared to death and it wasn't much fun. It wasn't much fun getting hit. But at the end of the day, I ended up getting uh, more shots in on him and he walked away eventually and just, and he walked away. So I guess I technically won the fight, but you know, I didn't feel good about it. Uh, it, it was, it was not my, my Rocky Balboa moment. It wasn't great. Like where I'm holding my hands up and saying, yeah, let's do it again. You know? And, uh, so I, I wouldn't recommend it for anybody. But anyway, sometimes you got to defend yourself. So anyway, uh, the bully then Billy starts coming towards me. I'm thinking, you've got to be kidding me. I'm not going to be able to be two of these guys. And so at that point, some of my other friends kind of stepped in front of me and said, enough's enough. He did his thing one-on-one. You're not going to do this. And then the teachers came, and, and they took Billy to the office. They took Tony to the office. They took me to the assistant principal's office. And, of course, you know, this is really good. The assistant principal uh, it was a member of my church. <laughs> and so uh, that worked out for me pretty well. And so... Uh, Tony and Billy were suspended, and I was not suspended. In those days, you could, you could fight if you were defending yourself. And so, you know, I was the, the hero or whatever for winning that. Uh, but anyway, so I was delivered. But my true point of delivery was not winning the victory or not getting, not getting suspended, that sort of thing. It was like that Exodus 3.12 moment. I felt the presence of God with me whether I was going to win or lose, whether I was going to get beat up or, or not. And so I think if you are in a tough spot right now, if you feel walled in, then know that God is with you. But there's one you know, bigger question, one, one bigger thing that I wrestle with that, that I, I would ask you to spend some time with me today wrestling with is, is what happens when we love God and we trust God, we do the right thing, we come to church, we, we pray to God, we try to do everything right, and, and, and we're asking God to help us out in a situation and the deliverance doesn't happen. 
It just doesn't happen. We're praying for somebody that we love who is sick and they're hurting and they're dying and they die a horrible death. When, 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 when we are being abused by someone night after night and they keep coming into our room and abusing us and we pray for God to make it stop and they keep coming anyway. When the bullies keep coming after us and we don't win that victory and they just pound the crap out of us, right? And that happens or when we don't get the job because we're the wrong color or we're the wrong gender and the doors just keep slamming and slamming and slamming in our face, right? What about then? Right? Where is God's deliverance? Where is God when, when we don't, in our lower story, we don't get delivered? Because that happens all the time. There are lots of good people. There are lots of Christian people who pray and do the right thing and, and do everything that they can. And, and terrible things happen to us. Terrible Horrible, unfair things happen to us. You know, what's the deal then? Where is the deliverance? Where is God stepping in? Where is the assistant principal coming to save us, right? Where, where is that moment and why doesn't it happen? And, and so where, why did God wait 430 years to do this kind of stuff? Right? I don't have the easy answer. And I still struggle with that. But, but, but there's one thing I would ask us to think about. Maybe... Maybe God has lit a burning bush or burning bushes in front of some other people to help us out. And instead of being like Moses and reluctantly going to do it, we've seen the burning bush and we said, you know what, God, I could probably help this situation out, but I don't think that I'm going to do that. You're going to have to find somebody else. I wonder if sometimes people in our lives are not delivered because we have been God's chosen agent tapped on the shoulder to say, I know need you to do this. And we've said, no, we've seen the burning bush. We've heard God speak to us. We know we should get involved. We know we should act. We know that we are the Moses. We are the deliverer. And we, for whatever reason, have chosen not to heed what God has said to us through our burning bush. And I wonder sometimes, brothers and sisters, if we don't fail one another, if we don't fail God, when we've received a burning bush and we've said no, and we've walked away. Yesterday, uh, Kevin and I and a couple of members of our, of our uh, community outreach team, our missions team, went to this really cool conference that was in Uptown Charlotte, and it's called Movement Day Charlotte. And, and the whole goal is to get together uh, church leaders and business leaders and government leaders and not-for-profit leaders to come together to be unified, to be unified together so that we can transform the city of Charlotte for the glory of God. And it's a beautiful vision, and it really kind of gives us affirmation that our vision to be the spiritual crossroads of South Park, that uh, to lead people to life rich in Christ, that the dream big project that we have of rebuilding our campus into a mixed-use development with the church as a anchor is the same vision that the Movement Day vision is, is that we all come together from all walks of life, we do life together, and we make our city a better place, and we do it all for the glory of God. And it was an amazing conference and, and there's like 960 churches in Charlotte and, and over 200 churches were represented. There were over 900 people there. The mayor was there. All these nonprofit leaders were there. Business leaders were there. Some of the Panthers were there. And it's just really cool. And we talked about some neat ways that, that people are working together in our city to bring God glory and to make our city a better place. 
We also talked about some of the challenges that are in Charlotte and that some of the, the things that are, that are being left undone that we need to come together and work on and, and make a better place. And so I just want to share with you some of the things that I learned yesterday. They kind of you know jumped on my heart and some of these are super exciting and some of these weigh heavy on me. And I just, I thought it'd be interesting to share today and forgive me for looking, I haven't memorized these yet. It just, it happened yesterday, but some really cool things happening. They said that 49% of the people in Charlotte are attending work worship like on a weekly basis, right? And now that is, and that is tremendous. I mean, so not everybody's telling the truth who said this probably, but you know, the national average is, is that people say they, you know, 30% of the people are going to church actively and, and most of those are lying. And so it's probably somewhere closer to 15%, but almost half of our city says that they're actively involved in a church. I mean, that's, that is just incredible. Uh, there are 960 churches in Charlotte in Mecklenburg County. Uh, Charlotte is the sixth most Bible-minded city in the United States means we read our Bibles, right? We read the story. We, we understand the Bible. We, we dig into that. We value it. We believe what it has to say. We're the third largest financial hub in all of the United States of America, Charlotte. Third largest financial hub in all the United States of America. That's incredible, right? We're, we're a godly city. We worship God. We believe in the Bible. We work hard. A lot of good things happening in the life of Charlotte. But then they shared some things, right? They did this thing called the State of the City Report. It's this big, thick book. And I was looking through some of this stuff last night, and they highlighted some things. And this, what I'm getting ready to say, is, is, is it's just, it, it is a huge disconnect from what I, what I just shared with you. They, they ranked like the top 50 largest cities in America uh, in different categories. And so Charlotte's one of the top 50 largest cities in America. Uh, and in upward mobility, that means if, you know, if, you're, if you're born in poverty, that you want to move up to the middle class or move up to the upper middle class or up to the, the upper class, right? In upward mobility, the, the ability for people in, in our city to, to move up to better their lives, we're number 50 of 50 uh, uh, cities in America, we're last. So what that means is, if you're born in poverty in Charlotte, you're going to stay in poverty. If you're a child who's living in poverty, get used to living in poverty. You're going to be stuck there because in our city, we're not making it easy for you to get out of being in poverty. One out of two schools in our city are segregated by race. Half of our school systems are segregated, white, Black, Hispanic, right? And our churches are not much better, right? Even we here in our church, we're loving people, but, but we're a majority white church and we reflect our community. It's a majority white community. There's nothing wrong with white people, right? I'm a white man. But when we are not reflecting the diversity of the people in our city and all the great people that God has put in our midst, then something is wrong, Right, One out of three of our schools is segregated by poverty. Right, So that means we have rich schools and we have poor schools. 20% of the children in our county, one out of five children are living in poverty. Right, So 20% of our children born in poverty, living in poverty, they're going to stay in poverty because they were born in the city of Charlotte. They said that we need about 34,000 more affordable housing units in our city that people can't afford to live in houses, they can't afford to live in apartments, they can't afford to live in condominiums. 34,000 people need homes in our city and they can't afford it because there's nowhere that they can afford. 
right? The city of Charlotte's going to build about 5,000 affordable housing units over the next three years. So that leaves, what, 29,000 people, families, who don't have a place that they can live, right? That they can afford to live, right? Our community that we're building on our property with Children's Climb Properties, the, the apex that we're, that we're going to be in the center of, we're going to have all these really cool apartments, right? You know, only 5% of those are going to be subsidized housing, right? I mean, I just got to stand in front of you today and apologize as, as the pastor of this church that we didn't fight for more of that, right? 29,000 housing units we're short on so that people can live in, in, in a home of their own in our city. We're the number one city in the state, top 10 in the nation for human trafficking. That's where mostly women and children are bought and sold for sex. They have to have sex against their will. We're number one in that. Right? So, so on the one hand, we are churched and we go to church and we are the buckle in the Bible belt and, and, and we read the Bible and we believe in the Bible and we, we have the third best economy in all of the nation on one hand. The other hand is if you're born in poverty, you're going to be stuck there. You're going to be segregated by your, by your class. You're going to be segregated by your color of your skin. Right? We're going to traffic you and sell you and profit from you uh, sexually. Right? How can that happen? Right? How is the disparity between being good Christian people and then letting all these things happen under our watch in our city? Right? So the answer at the conference yesterday was pretty simple. It says all this is happening because we who follow Jesus in the business world, in the Christian church world, in the nonprofit world, in the government, in the schools, we're not unified. And Satan has divided us and we're working against each other and we're competing against each other and we're not coming together to think about big picture, right? We're reacting and we're putting band-aids on issues, but we're not solving the issues that are keeping people down, right? And, and so what's happening is in our churches, we're fighting more about the color of the carpet or how big the organ's going to be or who's stealing the donuts in the lobby, right? Then we are about children who are going to be living in poverty for the rest of their lives, right? What it means is we're not doing our job as Christians. We're not doing what God has called us to do, that, that God has lit a huge burning bush, that God has lit all these burning bushes in our lives saying, this is wrong in your city and what are you going to do about it? Right? And we live in South Park. This is the wealthiest, most powerful, most influential community in all of Charlotte, right? And God has planted us to be the spiritual crossroads of South Park. We're to be the church of the most politically powerful, uh, richest, uh, most influential community in our city. And, and we're letting these things happen. We're letting, we're letting right, 20% of our children, you know what their parents are telling them? They're saying, you're going to have it better than me. I know things are tough right now, but, but, but this is America and you can be whatever you want to be and you can do whatever you want to do, right? You're, you're going to have it better than me and your mom. You're going to have it better than me and your dad. And, and, and you know, you can dream and, and, and you're going to come up and you're going to make something of yourself in life. And you know what's happening is whether they know it or not, these parents are lying to those kids. Because the statistics prove it. If you're born in poverty, you're staying in poverty. 
Because the people who have the wealth and the money and the power, whether they admit it or not, or even know it or not, want you to stay there and they want you to stay out of their neighborhoods and, and do your thing and we'll do our thing and we'll go to church and we'll praise Jesus and we'll read the Bible and you just keep suffering. Is that what God calls us to do? Brothers and sisters, I think that Jesus is calling us to be Moses. And I think he's calling us to have our hearts broken. And I think he's calling us to say, you know what? We need to get in the game. And we need to work with other churches. And we need to work with the government. We need to work with the schools. And we need to work with the politicians. And we need to work with the businesses. And, 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 and we're not getting it right. right. I had somebody come up after the first service and say, you know what, Pastor Kyle, I can't tell you. I, just, I didn't enjoy the sermon today. Right? I didn't enjoy preaching the sermon today. Right? I, I don't have the answers. These are big problems. Right. And so what I asked the first service to do is, is what I'm going to ask you to do is, you know, earlier in our Dream Big project, we I had asked you to pray every day at 109. Right. You could choose a.m. or p.m., whatever, you, you know, you're a morning person, an evening person. Right. To pray uh, Joshua 1, 9 in the Old Testament where God says, be bold and courageous and I will be with you. Right? The vision for us to be the spiritual crossroads of South Park, to, to lead people to life rich in Christ, to knock down our buildings, to build a mixed-use development right, so that, that we can reach our community for Jesus, that, that, that takes boldness. And you guys have been bold. Right? We're going to knock our building down, and we changed our church name. We've lost 30% of our congregation because we've been bold for Jesus, and it's been worth every step of it. Right? We are, we are active. We go to soup kitchens, and we go to nursing homes, and we go to schools, and, and we, do, we give Christmas Eve offering. It's awesome. It's, it's great, but it's not enough. And we can't do it on our own. And so what, I, what I'm asking you to do, the call to action today is every day, pray at 109. Get, if you get your phone out right now, go ahead and, and set your alarm, right? To pray, God, make us a bold church. Make us bold not just to rebuild our campus. Make us bold not just to rebrand ourselves. Make us bold. Break our hearts for the children who are suffering in our community. Break our hearts, Lord, that, that, that we are racially divided as a city. Break our hearts, God, for those who don't know you. Do you know why the other 50% of people in Charlotte aren't coming to churches? It's because they likely see that, that we're coming to church and we're not helping these people. So 109. Lord, break our hearts. Show us the way. You know, same person asked me, well, did they have anything good to celebrate at that conference? I said, absolutely. They, they told story after story of great things happening in the life of Charlotte. And I'm not saying that great things aren't happening, but I, I don't have the answers to solve these problems. They are huge problems. And so I think the best place to start is on our knees before Jesus. Say, Lord, we love you. We're trying hard, but we still got a long way to go. God, break my heart. Lord, show me a burning bush and give me the guts. Give me the guts to do what you're calling me to do. Because I think God's calling us to be like Moses, and it's scary. And, and we're standing there, and he's saying, you need to go to Pharaoh, and you need to tell him to let my people go. But God, that's hard, and that's scary, and I don't feel that I'm capable of doing that. God says, go anyway, because wherever you go, I am with you. Exodus 3.12, I will be with you. Right? Those parents who are telling their kids, you can do whatever you want to do. You can rise above who we are. I don't want them to be liars anymore. Because if that was my child, that would break my heart. These are God's children. Brothers and sisters, God has placed us as a church in the most powerful, the most wealthy, the most influential community in, 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 in all of Charlotte. If we win people's hearts for Jesus here, we can change this city. And that is our vision. 
we partner with other churches and the business communities, right? We can say, God, we helped set your people free. So please join me in, in just praying and tell me what you hear. Tell me what burning bushes you're here. And, and we're going to talk about it as a staff. We're going to talk about it as a leadership team. We're going to talk about it as a community outreach team. We've done great things for Jesus. But he's got so much more work for us to do. He sees the people of Charlotte who are hurting and oppressed, and he said to us, go and let my people go. Set them free. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.